Dear Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together today and to hear you speak to us, to spend time with one another. And we pray, Father God, that you'd be at work in us and through us. We pray you'd open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see wonderful things in your word. We pray you'd change us individually and together as a church. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, everyone needs one. Uh, you can't really live without one. Whether it's post-it notes uh, on the fridge or a list in your head, whether it's an app on your phone or a notebook you carry with you everywhere, we all need some sort of to-do list in life, a way to figure out our priorities. If we don't have one, uh, we miss appointments, we get fines on our library books, uh, we forget to pick the children up from school, uh, we don't prepare properly for a meeting, we have diary clashes we can't fix and a string of people we've let down and perhaps we even burn out from all the competing demands of life. What needs doing right now and what can wait? What can go to the bottom of the list and what can we not afford to forget? Individuals need them, families need them, businesses need them, governments need them and God's people, the church, need them too. To-do lists, a way to figure out our individual and our collective priorities. Uh, perhaps you've been part of this church family for a long time. What do you think should go at the top of the to-do list? Is there something that isn't happening that you wish you long would be higher up the priorities? Or maybe you've joined this church family more recently. Are you puzzled by the attention that we give to some things? Uh, do you feel that a part of church life perhaps is um, overlooked? Can we know for sure where to focus our energies as a church? How should we decide whether it's time to do a new thing or time to stop an old thing? Would we know if we'd made the wrong call, if we'd put the wrong things on the list or put them in the wrong order? And would it matter anyway? Well, Haggai is the second shortest book in the Old Testament, but it's got a lot to say to us about how God's people should write their to-do lists. And so I hope it'll be really helpful for us as we look at it together today. Uh, but not only is it the second shortest book, it's probably also a rather unfamiliar book. So to begin with, I just want us to do a bit of detective work to get our bearings. And thankfully, Haggai gives us a couple of big clues right there at the beginning. So chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. So Darius is king of the Persian Empire, the vast empire that covers uh, so much of the world at that time. Uh, he became king in 521 BC. So Haggai begins his ministry uh, one year later. Darius' father, Cyrus, He's the king who defeated the Babylonian Empire about 20 years previously. And of course, Babylon was the place where the people of Judah had been in exile for 70 years. Uh, but then when Cyrus defeated the Babylonians, he sent many of the Jews home to Judah, to Jerusalem, and he gave them a job to do. He said, rebuild the temple, the temple that the Babylonian army had destroyed. 
That was an amazing um, opportunity and the Jews uh, took that with huge enthusiasm and energy and you can read all about that in the first few chapters of the book of Ezra. Uh, but then Ezra also tells us that the Samaritans who'd moved in whilst the Jews had been in exile, they gave the Jewish builders a really hard time. Uh, they even bribed the local officials to, to stir up trouble and to slow the work down and Cyrus didn't step in to sort out the problems. And so the project ground to a halt. And that great temple rebuilding project stopped for 16 years. And that's the point in the story when Haggai steps in, verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Well, on the face of it, it might sound like they've got sensible, wise reasons to delay. Maybe they need to wait for the remnants of that opposition to ebb away. Maybe they were a bit strapped for cash and they were waiting for the economics to improve. But when God says the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house, I think that is actually code for we've got better things to do. We've got better things to do. You see, God's people had got their to-do lists back to front and upside down. Their priorities were all wrong. And so Haggai issues them with a challenge. And that is our first lesson today. If we prioritise our comfort ahead of God's presence, we'll face God's displeasure. If we prioritise our comfort ahead of God's presence, we'll face God's displeasure. Verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses, while this house remains a ruin? If it's the right time to build your house, says God, how on earth can it be the wrong time to build mine? Now, of course, panelled houses doesn't mean they were all living in these amazing stately homes with oak panelled dining rooms. But it does mean that they'd had time to, to fix the leaky roof, to fit a new kitchen, to do an extension, to paint the kids' bedroom. They'd been back in Jerusalem, remember, for 16 years. That's a long time to renovate your house and get your business up and running again. And it's a very long time to neglect the temple of the one true God, to leave it as an abandoned building site at the centre of town. Just think, how many times have they walked past that derelict building site on the way to the local hardware store to buy themselves some more panelling? for their houses. So Haggai isn't condemning their comfortable living as such, but he's not at all happy that they've put their comfort over their obedience to him. Because the temple was much more than a building. It was the place where God was present with his people. But that wasn't a priority for them anymore. They've got better things to do than put God at the centre of their lives. Their priorities were upside down and back to front. But before Haggai tells them how to rewrite their to-do lists, he says that they need to engage in some serious self-examination. He wants them to think about, is the way we're living our lives working? Because if they take a moment to reflect on it, it will be pretty obvious that it's not. Let's look at verse 5. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. 
You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Now, God isn't saying, if only you'd scratched my back, I'd have scratched yours. Instead, he's pointing out that life generally works best when we're in tune with God. You see, it looked like the people had what they needed. They had food and drink and clothing and wages. They weren't living in poverty. They were comfortable in their panelled houses. But they were profoundly dissatisfied because they weren't in tune with God. And life is like that too for us. If we honour God, if we obey him, if we seek to put him at the centre of our lives, then life will generally work and we'll know his blessing upon us. But if we neglect his presence, if we pursue our own comfortable agendas, then life will never satisfy us as God intended it to do. Our satisfaction will be determined by whether we're comfortable or not, rather than by God's unchanging presence through all the ups and all the downs of life. The only remedy to that is to rewrite our to-do lists, which is just what Haggai tells the people to do. So they need to examine themselves, and then they need to take some action. They need to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty. Verse 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured says the Lord. You know the way most modern, uh, lots of modern football stadiums are named after their sponsors. You've got the Etihad, uh, the Emirates, things like that. The idea being that the, the big corporate giant wants to be um, in the limelight. And the temple was a bit like that for God. It was meant to be a giant advert for his holiness, his love, his faithfulness and mercy. But remember what it is? It's an abandoned heap of rubble at the centre of town. God looks weak and worthless and second-rate, all because God's people haven't prioritised his presence among them. But now it's time for that to change. They need to give careful thought to their ways. In other words, they need to repent. They need to recognise that their priorities are upside down and back to front. They need to recognise that they prioritise God's comfort instead of God's pleasure, uh, God's presence, and so they're facing and will still face God's displeasure unless they change. Verse 9. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labour of your hands. Well, these verses, they repeat in some senses those ideas we already saw in verse 6, but they actually go further and they paint a warning picture of judgment because they echo the curses that God said his people would experience if they turned away from him and back in Deuteronomy verse 28. Back then God said if you choose to break my covenant you will face my judgment and you will end up in exile and of course that is exactly what happened isn't it but now he is saying history is in danger of repeating itself. The people of Judah have returned from exile 
that they're going astray again. They're seeking their, God, their comfort instead of God's presence. And so they face the real threat of God's displeasure and rejection. So, what should our number one priority be as individuals and as a church? Surely Haggai would say it has to be ensuring that the presence of God is here among us. We're not building a physical temple anymore, but the New Testament teaches, doesn't it, that we individually are the temple of God and together the temple of God. And of course it's all too easy to seek our own individual comfort or our comfort together instead of making sacrifices, costly sacrifices, to prioritise God's presence among us. So it's comfortable to come to church on a Sunday and catch up with friends. It's costly to come to church on Sunday expecting to greet someone we don't know very well yet because we want to help that person enjoy the presence of God as they meet with us. It's comfortable to go on serving in the same old way on autopilot, but it's costly to do something new because we sense that that might be the way that God wants to work among us. It's comfortable to keep our homes and our finances to ourselves, but it's costly to invite others round for meals or, or to give our money generously, not because that's the done thing, but because that's a way to honour God in our midst. Those are just a few examples of those sacrifices versus comforts, and we'll be able to think of a bit about a few more in groups later on. But before we put that lesson, uh, however we put that lesson into practice, let's not ignore its challenge. If we prioritise our comfort ahead of God's presence, we'll face God's displeasure. So Haggai begins with a warning, but he also wants to help the people get back on track. And what he says next is meant to help them do that. It is a wonderful encouragement and it points us to our, another vital priority that we need to have on our to-do list. So secondly, if we submit to God's word, he'll stir us to serve him. If we submit to God's word, he'll stir us to serve him. Verse 13. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedach the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. Uh, over the next five weeks, we'll hear lots of speeches, won't we, from wannabe um, MPs and prime ministers. And almost all of those speeches will provoke a divided response. But when God's prophet speaks to his people here, to the most powerful officials, to Zerubbabel, to Josedach, and to, to all, the, all the people... There is total agreement, to use a modern phrase. There is no dither or delay. Everyone submits to God's word. They give careful thought to their ways, which is just what Haggai told them to do. And the result was life-changing. You see there at the end of verse 12, the people feared the Lord. The people feared the Lord. They, in other words, they became aware of his total supreme authority over all things. They had a fresh sense of his perfect holiness and his awesome power. Now, I think they knew these things in their heads, but they'd effectively forgotten them. And that is why they'd thought it was more important to panel their houses 
and to give their houses a new lick of paint and to prioritise building God's house. In their head, they believed in God's awesome power and holiness and sovereignty, but they didn't feel the force of those things in their hearts. But when God spoke to them through his messenger, the prophet Haggai, all that changed. The people feared the Lord. How did God speak to them? Well, on one level, it was the voice of the Lord. Do you see that verse 12? The people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. But of course, they didn't actually hear audibly from heaven God speak. They heard it through the words of the prophet Haggai. You see that at verse 12. And the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And that interplay between God's voice and Haggai's voice reminds us of something really important. It reminds us that God so often speaks to his people through a preacher. That was the normal way God spoke to his people back then, and it's the, the normal way he speaks to us now. His word, when it's preached, has a special power to touch and transform our hearts. Home groups are important. Reading the Bible ourselves is important. Speaking God's word to one another is important. But in a special way, hearing God's word preached as a church is absolutely essential. It's not because of the preacher himself, but it's because that's the way God chooses to speak to the world today. And so that must continue to be at the top of our list of priorities. So the people of God submitted together to God's preached word and they feared the Lord in a fresh and new way and then God got to work wonderfully amongst them. Verse 13, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. That is perhaps the most precious promise we could ever know as individuals and as a church. I am with you, declares the Lord, because it assures us that God is on our side despite our disordered priorities. He, if we prioritise his presence in our lives individually and together, he will give us that opportunity to start again. Specifically, do you see how he stirs us up inside so that we want to serve him? He'll move our hearts, our wills, our desires, our motivations and our spirits. He'll give us a new passion to do things for him. He'll revive the dying embers of previous attempts to serve him. He'll give us that deep spiritual change we need to get going in his service again. The Lord stirred up the spirits of all these people. I wonder if you can think of a time when that happened in your life, when the Lord stirred up your spirit. Would you make today perhaps a day that you would ask God to stir your heart again and then pray for courage to put those stirrings into practice? Because that's what God wants. That's what the people of Judah did next. Verse 14. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month. I just noticed that takes about three and a bit weeks from when Haggai first speaks 
to when they actually start working. And maybe that little bit of a delay slightly surprises us. But just think about all that rubble that needed to be cleared, all those materials that needed to be prepared, all those work teams that needed organising. It was pretty impressive to start just over three weeks later. But the most important preparation wasn't all those logistics. The most important thing was the change of heart in God's people. God was stirring them up to serve him. But just that little delay reminds us, doesn't it, that it will often take time for God to change our hearts. So we need to be listening to his word carefully and humbly. We need to be praying for ourselves and for one another to be transformed by his spirit. And over time, that change will come as God stirs us up inside to serve him. Not working on a physical temple that merely symbolised God's presence but building ourselves up and each other to prioritise God's presence among us by his spirit. So if we, if we submit to God's word, he'll stir us to serve him. That is a vital step on the way to reordering our priorities. But what happens, but if that happens, and then the results of serving God are not what we were hoping for? Well, that's the issue that Haggai had to address a couple of months later. And it takes us to our third lesson this morning. Uh, it's perhaps the most wonderful encouragement we can get to prioritise his presence among us. So thirdly, if we partner with God, we'll share in his glory. If we partner with God, we'll share in his glory. Verse 1 of chapter 2. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? So it took less than a month of hard work before the discouragement began to set in. The splendour of Solomon's temple was still fresh in their collective memory. The gold panelling, the beautiful wooden carvings, the rich upholstery, all the sacred objects. Uh, of course that splendour had faded over time as various foreign kings had come in and plundered the treasures of the temple. But 70 years previously it was still an imposing and magnificent building. But now as they relayed the foundations and cleared the rubble, it was just a building site. Do you remember at the back at the beginning of chapter 1, the people were apathetic and complacent. And they needed that stern wake-up call to, to prioritise God's presence. But now at the beginning of chapter 2, they've begun to realise the size of the task ahead of them. Their attitude isn't apathy and complacency, their attitude is despondency. Maybe they're inclined even to give up. So in steps Haggai with a brief but amazingly powerful motivational speech, verse 4. But now, be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. Well, it'd be no use if uh, a company hired a management consultant to um, G up, demoralise staff, and that person came in and simply said, work, work, work. Be strong, pull your finger out. But although God says in those verses three times, be strong, be strong, be strong, and work, 
He's not barking at the discouraged people. He's not telling them to, to pull their finger out. He's inviting them to be his business partners and to work alongside him. You see that in verse 4. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So God repeats the promise he's made previously in chapter 1, I am with you, but here he gives more depth and colour to it. You see, they are thinking back a little over 70 years, and they are discouraged and despondent. They're thinking, how can we ever build a temple as glorious as the temple Solomon built? But God says to them, don't think back a hundred years. Think back a thousand years. Think back to the time when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt. Because do you know what I did back then? I made a cast iron guarantee, a covenant, to be with you forever. So he says there's no need to succumb to doubt, despondency and fear. God doesn't say work because that gets things done or work because you'll feel better if you do it or work because that's what people expect you to do he says work because i am with you you see if god is with us our work is guaranteed to succeed and nothing else has the power to motivate us to serve him than that most awesome promise God invites us to, to partner with him, to bring his presence into our lives and into this world. And if we take up that invitation, the rewards will be glorious. Verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. I want you to imagine that your football club is in the relegation zone. The trophy cabinet is dusty and forgotten. The players haven't been paid for months. You're staring the liquidators, the administrators um, down the in the face. But then the chairman gets a phone call from a Russian oligarch or a Saudi oil tycoon and they want to buy the club. They're going to pump in billions. They're going to build a new stadium. They're going to buy the best players. You are heading for the top. The glory days are just around the corner. That is the idea here in these verses. God has unlimited resources and power and influence. Yes, the temple is an empty shell, but soon it will be filled with treasures again. And the Jews actually didn't have to wait very long before those words came true. Because King Darius ordered that everything needed to rebuild the temple was to be supplied from the Persian royal treasury. And then, 500 years later, Herod the Great upgraded the temple again. It was so magnificent that one day when Jesus' disciples were walking past it, they said this, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. But even Herod's upgrades and Darius's um, upgrades were not the end of God's plans for the temple. Verse 9, the glory of this former house, of this present house, will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, 
I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. See, Jesus' disciples said, look, teacher, what enormous stones, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus says, not one stone will be left standing on another. Even the glory of that rebuilt temple would be destroyed one day. But God says, I will build a greater, more glorious temple still. Although, of course, that temple is not built with bricks and mortar. One of the few things Jesus' accusers could pin on him was his attitude to the temple. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another, not made with hands. And so, of course, Jesus died and rose again to be the new temple in which God would grant peace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, For he himself is our peace. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. See, Jesus died and rose again to bring peace between people and peace with him, peace with God. And in the church, the local church, we are able to enjoy and experience and share that peace today. So I wonder if there are times when you feel discouraged or despondent about church life, feel like giving up a little bit like the people did just a few weeks after getting started. Maybe we think back in our minds to a church we were part of before and we think that was so much more glorious than Christchurch Ellsfield. Maybe we look at the national picture of the church declining and we feel like giving up. Let's remember Haggai's wonderful words of motivation and encouragement. If we partner with God, we will share in his glory. You see, we are not in this business by ourselves. God is with us. We do not need to fear. His spirit remains among us. He, is, he has already built that greater, more glorious temple in the person of the risen Jesus. And through him, he is building that temple again as he connects us to him, brick by brick, and offers lasting peace to the world. So where should we focus our energies as a church and as individuals? How should we know if it's time to do a new thing or stop an old thing? Would we know if we'd made the wrong call, if we'd put the wrong things on our to-do list or listed them in the wrong order? Would it matter anyway? Well, through his prophet Haggai, God helps us answer those important questions. First of all, he gives us an important and challenging wake-up call. If we prioritise our comfort ahead of God's presence, we'll face his displeasure. See, our number one priority must be to make God at the centre of our lives individually and our life as a church. Many other things will compete for that space and crowd him out. On many occasions, we'll, we'll be naturally inclined to go for comfort instead of God's presence. Sometimes we will feel like we've got better things to do. But if we go down that route, God says we're heading for trouble. But if we will hear and respond to that challenge, Haggai gives us that wonderful word of encouragement. If we submit to God's word, he'll stir us to serve him. God's word has great power to transform our hearts so that our lives might be transformed too. And as he transforms us, we can make his presence our number one concern. And then, as we're serving him, when things don't turn out how we were hoping, 
when we're inclined to give up because it's just too hard, or we feel like giving in to despondency and fear, Haggai reassures us and encourages us again. If we partner with God, we will share in his glory. Because you see, ultimately, there is a new temple that is being built. The Lord said to the people of Judah, I am with you. Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us. And by his spirit, he's with us now. He promises to make us his partners as he builds his glorious temple. He says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then when we reach that time, that very end of the age, we will certainly share in his glory. It's the second shortest book in the Old Testament, but just notice how it is very deliberately echoed in the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. John writes, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. And here's the echo of Haggai. The kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Shall we pray? Our great God, we are sorry when we seek our comfort ahead of your presence. When we do that in our own lives, and when we do that in our life together, we pray for your forgiveness. Our God, we thank you that you, by your Spirit, stir us to serve you. Thank you that you promise to be with us and we pray you would give us a right sense of your glory and your holiness, your perfection, your goodness, that you would stir up our hearts to serve you in all sorts of ways. And our God, we thank you that if we partner with you, we will share in your glory. We thank you that there is that glorious new creation coming. And we pray, Father God, that you would help us in all things in our life, to make that glory, your honour, our chief concern. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, there's some discussion questions on, in your booklet. And um, rather than splitting up into home, actually, no, let's split up into home. Should we split into home groups or should we? Let's do that. So we might need to go and find somewhere or um, just around the building, and we're going to spend about just five, ten minutes looking at those questions together.